the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen, since I haven't had relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman, who was labeled unable to conceive, is now six months pregnant. Nothing is, is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me, just as you have said. Then the angel left her. May the living word of God speak to us through these ancient words. I came across a meme this week that made me chuckle, and it was just a stark black with white words on it, and it said, me yelling at squirrels in the street to move so they don't die is probably the same feeling God has watching me live my life most days. <laughs> I'm sure you've experienced that, telling the squirrels to get out of the way. I talk to them all the time, especially in the fall when they seem to be running all over the place. But it kind of makes us imagine God sort of watching over our lives, thinking, really? Is that what she's going to do? Or, okay, yeah, that made sense, but it was kind of risky. The decisions that we make every day. Did you know that we make adults average and three, sorry, 35,000, 35,000 at least partially conscious decisions every single day? Assuming we're awake for 16 hours of the day, that means that we make a decision about every two and a half seconds, at least partially conscious. And it's not like, take a breath in, let a breath out. It's more like, okay, what's next? What's for lunch? Should I turn here? Is my filter up enough so I don't say what I'm actually thinking? It's often more subtle than what we actually think about or realize. Every decision, especially the big ones, require this sense of wondering, this sense of pondering, of considering our options. And the basis of making these decisions is thinking. Now, our Bible story for today, a big decision is made. Mary is presented with a choice. Shall she bear Jesus or will she not? Now, modern criticism of this story suggests that Mary actually didn't have a choice, that there was no decision to make, that it was a done deal, that she would just simply bear Jesus, and that they kind of, uh, modern scholars will often criticize that. Either that, or they will say that she is the epitome of obedience, that she just simply does what God asks without thinking about it. But if we take a closer look at the story, that's not actually the case. We realize that this story is very methodical. She is presented with this greeting, which she pondered. What does this mean? The angel then says not to be afraid that she has found favor with God. And then she asks for clarification. How will this happen? 
The angel reveals how. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense biologically, but Luke isn't in the business of biology. He's in the business of theology, of meaning. And then ultimately Mary agrees to it. Let it happen as you have said. Now, not, it's not very often that we as Protestants talk about Mary. There's kind of a sense of an underlying discomfort that goes with her character. It could be influenced by our Catholic brothers and sisters assigning her an almost divinity, offering prayers to her, saying things like the Hail Mary, or asking her for intercession where perhaps her prayer could have, make some difference with God on our behalf. But the Catholic belief emphasizes her specialness. It emphasizes her uniqueness, the fact that she is set apart from every other person on earth chosen for this task. But the Protestant belief often emphasizes her averageness, that she's a, simply an average young woman, likely a young teenager, and that it is in fact her ordinariness that makes her extraordinary for this task. Have you seen representations in artistic work before of Mary? It always seems to look like she is bearing the weight of the world on her shoulders. That instead of having just having had an experience of God, instead of just having had an angel appear to her and speak, she does not look like often that she has just received good news of great joy. That's why I like the painting that's printed in the bulletin. If you flip back to that scripture page, there's a painting there by, it's called The Annunciation. It was done in 1898 by Henry Asawa Tanner, and it's currently housed in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Now, Tanner was a realist. He was probably called, he was actually called the premier painter of African descent in all of art history. Um, he was African-American. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1859 to a minister who ensured that he received an excellent education. In 1879, and notice, we're talking 1800s here, not 1900s. It was a very different world for people of African descent. So he enrolled in the Pennsylvania Academy in 1879, but because the U.S. didn't present the best opportunities for him, he went over to France. He went to Paris in 1891, where he spent the remainder of his life and became this internationally celebrated artist. According to Faith and Culture, which is the journal of the Augustine Institute, they say, for a realist painter, creating a vision of something supernatural presented innumerable problems which is why almost no realist painters created sacred art. As a result, they depicted only those events that they themselves could directly observe. Thus, although an artist might use a young woman as a model for a painting of an angel, a realist would never even consider painting an angel. Now, Tanner had never seen an angel. He professed that, but he did say that he believed in their existence nonetheless. So he asked this question. What would the Annunciation have looked like, really, as a realist? And so then the painting portrays Mary as he would have imagined her, as she would have looked at the moment of the Annunciation. She looks like a teenage girl from Israel. She is ethnically Middle Eastern. She has dark hair and Middle Eastern skin tones, not as a blonde woman, like a Northern European um, attributes like so many other artists would have painted. She's clearly not wealthy. She's dressed in clothes of a poor person. Her room would reflect her humble status. She sits on a simple bed with crumpled up sheets. She's in a room with rough plain walls and cracked cobblestone. She almost has no possessions, just a lamp and a couple of jars, and not even sandals on her feet. 
Now, if we look at her demeanor, she seems a little bit anxious in the presence of the angel, but to me, she doesn't seem afraid. With her hands folded in her lap in prayer, she instead gazes at the angel with peace and serenity, and she appears to be listening intently. This is the moment he painted of her wondering, of her pondering. She is considering all that the angel is saying and all of the implications that come with it, but not with a sense of fear, more about a sense of steady wondering. And then there's Gabriel. This is actually the reason that I chose this painting for today. Have you ever seen an angel? It's not likely. I mean, maybe you have, but do we know what angels actually look like? If we are realists, how would we paint an angel? If we paint them like the Bible says, they're not going to look like our cute little kids on pageant Sunday in all white with wings. If you, act, if you Google biblically accurate angels, you will find images that go off what the Bible describes as angels that have feathers and eyes everywhere, not just two, <laughs> 20 even. Um, they are terrifying. Angels from the Bible, the description that we get are terrifying. So then how do we actually paint one? Well, he does so from a theological point of view. He does it as a pillar of light. And you'll notice it is the only light source in the room. Mary is sort of illuminated by that glow. The angel is simply energy, pure spiritual energy. And it brings us back to our question that we talked about last week, the how versus the why. Do we ask how or do we ask why? We don't know how angels appeared, but we do know why. We know that God has a message for Mary. And the message is that she's been chosen for a task. Now, much has been made about a lot of things in the story. First, why is she favored? Why is she, quote, the favored one? What makes her that way? And second, a virgin birth. How is that possible? But again, that's a how question. Instead, we wonder and we ask why. But as I said before, Luke's not trying to solve a biological puzzle. He's trying to announce that God is doing something new, that God is doing something miraculous. And the takeaway from that is that what will happen in Jesus' birth is a miracle. It is an act of God. And so now Mary has a decision to make. Is she worthy of doing this? What voice will she listen to, the one of God speaking to her or the one of the world who tells her that as a teenage young girl that she isn't worthy of, of being God's bearer? Did she really respond in complete obedience or did she wonder? She wondered about her call. She pondered what this could mean. And ultimately, she accepting, accepting the invitation from God means living into her calling as the mother of God. She will bear him, and then she'll lose him when he goes to the temple and wanders off. Then she'll watch him thrive and gain followers. Then she'll watch him be rejected. Then she will stand at the foot of his cross as he is killed. That is her place in history. It's her call. It's God's vision for her life. So no wonder, no wonder she wrestles with the decision of stepping into this role. She asks for clarification so that she has all the facts, and then she takes a step in faith to be the one who bears the light of the world. And that is actually something that we can all do. We are all invited. We are all invited by God into our calling. We're not forced to be a child of God, but it is a choice. And so we ponder, 
Will we, like Mary, hear the voice of God calling to us, whether it's out of a pillar of light or from somewhere else? Will we recognize the presence of God in front of us because it does come in so many forms? Will we ponder and wonder and consider? It means entering into a decision about God's call in our lives with open eyes and open hearts. And will we accept? Will we, like Mary, accept the call to be ones who bear God's light into this world? See, I think this is where the faith and the wonder of our minds intermingles with the faith and spirituality of our hearts. Wondering and pondering and weighing our options and considering which voice we will heed. It takes our brains. We don't check them at the door. We, instead, we bring them with us fully into this experience, into worship and into our lives. And that's where wondering comes in. According to uh, the man who wrote the book that I referenced last week, Dr. Keltner, um, who defined wonder as this, wonder is the mental state of openness, questioning, curiosity, and embracing mystery that arises out of experiences of awe. And he found in his research, as he was researching awe, that people were more open to wondering and to accepting spiritual experiences after having had an experience of awe, an experience that led them to consider their place in the world and how we are each a part of a larger interconnected system that is bigger than ourselves. That is that sense of awe. So perhaps, perhaps Mary was more open to considering such a great ask of her life because she had stood in awe in the presence of God. The angel had come to her in a flash of dazzling light, perhaps. Kind of like Moses standing beside the burning bush and hearing the voice of God emerge, as we discussed last week, and saying yes, both of them accepting the mission being the ones to bear the light of God in the world, to be the bearer of Christ and his good news of great joy. Maybe it takes that experience of awe at the presence of God. So perhaps that's why we are trying to reclaim that awe this Christmas, that we see in our mind's eye the dazzling light of the presence of God. We sit in wonder beside that young teenager and we wonder, we wonder together would we have accepted that call? Will we now? But having a sense of awe about these events and all the other events in our lives, it transforms our hearts. It allows for us to wonder and to ponder and to think anew about the way that God comes into our lives as we stand in God's presence, knowing that we are called to great things, to bear the light of the world. So we walk into Christmas with our eyes open, our eyes open to the miracle, our eyes open to the love. We walk toward the light of God. And what we discover there is the peace that passes understanding, which is where wonder and awe reside.